The legal case involving former President Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents heads back to a Florida courtroom today. It's Tuesday, July 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the White House is criticizing Russia for not extending a wartime deal with Ukraine over grain exports. Russia's decision to resume its effective blockade of Ukrainian ports and prevent this grain from getting to markets will harm people all over the world. Also this hour, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry heads to China for high-level talks. And this hour, new copycat drugs could end Humira's more than two-decade reign as the most prominent arthritis treatment. Humira is the poster child for what plagues the system. An enormous amount of patents, some of which are undeserved. Red Sox win, partly sunny, upper 80s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Search teams in Pennsylvania are still looking for two young children swept away by flash flooding north of Philadelphia last weekend. From member station WHYY, Sophia Schmidt reports five other people were killed, including the children's mother. Those killed in Saturday's flash flooding in Upper Makefield Township, Pennsylvania, ranged in age from 32 to 78. All died from drowning. Upper Makefield Fire Chief Tim Brewer said the victims did not drive into the floodwaters. They were caught. This was a flash flood. And this was the meaning of a flash flood. Every one of these people were caught in the water. The wall of water came to them. They did not go into the water. The search for the two missing children, a nine-month-old and a two-year-old, will continue. Officials say they're pulling in assistance from other parts of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Schmidt in Philadelphia. The National Weather Service says heat records could fall in the south and southwest today. Triple-digit temperatures are expected from California to southern Florida. Forecasters say it hit 126 degrees yesterday in Death Valley, California. The White House is repeating its call to Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville to stop blocking military appointments. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this move has stopped hundreds of military promotions from going forward. Senator Tuberville has refused to budge, citing his opposition to a Pentagon policy that reimburses service members who travel out of state to have an abortion. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Tuberville is single-handedly hurting military readiness. We're not the problem here. We're not causing this. This is the senator who's causing this. He's causing something that has never been done before. The House on Friday passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act, which includes a provision that would reverse the Pentagon abortion policy. Although that language is not likely to make it into the Senate version of the bill. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Ukraine says it'll work with the United Nations and Turkey to continue shipping Ukrainian grain through the Black Sea. Russia said it will stop participating in an agreement to allow its agricultural products and Ukrainian grain to ship safely despite the war. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says Russia decided to pull out of the deal and that choice will hurt hungry people. Ultimately, participation in these agreements is a choice. But struggling people everywhere and developing countries don't have a choice. Russian officials say Ukraine is at fault. That's because Russia claims yesterday Ukraine blew up part of the key bridge linking mainland Russia with the annexed region of Crimea. This is NPR.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Healy is promising an unprecedented response to help farmers in western Massachusetts. Many had their crops severely damaged or destroyed by flooding over the past week. And they say the floods may also put next year's crops in jeopardy as well. The flood damage is even worse in Vermont. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visited yesterday and promised federal help. As Vermont moves from the mode of immediate response to long-term recovery and begins the hard work of rebuilding from this disaster, I want to emphasize that the entire federal government, including the U.S. Department of Transportation, stands ready to continue to assist any way we can. Vermont officials have set up several centers around the state to help people learn what resources are available. The former state social worker who posed as a Boston Public School student has pleaded not guilty. 32-year-old Shelby Hewitt is charged with forgery. That's after she provided false information to get herself enrolled in three BPS schools. The judge yesterday ordered Hewitt to stay away from all schools until her next hearing next month. Climate change is helping ticks native to Central America find a new home on Cape Cod. Entomologist Larry Dapsis says the Lone Star tick was fo- first found on the Cape 12 years ago. Now they're thriving thanks to warmer and more humid weather. And Dapsis says these ticks are aggressive. The bite of a Lone Star tick can trigger an allergy, a food allergy, to red meat consumption. And this allergic response can be as mild as hives, but go all the way to anaphylactic shock. Dapsis says the insecticides permethran sprayed on your clothing will kill the Lone Star tick. A new exhibit at the New Bedford Fishing Heritage Center plans to showcase real and fictional sea monsters. The exhibit has art depicting sea creatures from around the world like kraken, giant squid, and mantis shrimp. Laura Orleans is the executive director of the center. She says the goal of the exhibit is to look at the fishing industry in different ways. This just gives us another angle, but thinking about the rich ethnic diversity and the tales um, that have come up in all the cultures of the world, but particularly the cultures in New Bedford, that's really a, a fun way to think about it. The exhibit, called Sea Monsters Real and Imagined, will stay up for until the end of the year. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Carla Itzkovich, whose gift, in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. The Red Sox shut out the A's 7-0 last night in Oakland. Boston relief pitcher Nick Pavetta threw six no-hit innings out of the bullpen. He also struck out 13 batters. The Sox and A's will play again tonight. An air quality alert is in effect until midnight for the Worcester area. It'll be partly sunny today with a high in the 80s. Cloudy overnight with a slight chance for rain and temperatures near 70. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the 80s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at wbur.org slash beachbooks.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. In a moment, a granddaughter of farm workers takes a senior post at the U.S. Agriculture Department. We begin with the story of farm products blocked in a war zone. Ukraine has been shipping its grain to the world thanks only to an agreement with Russia. That deal allows grain ships to move safely across the Black Sea without being tangled in Russia's invasion. This week, Russia said it's suspending its participation in that deal. The head of the humanitarian group Mercy Corps is in our studios to talk about this. Jada McKenna is the Mercy Corps CEO. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So who's in danger from this move? You know, we all are. This is something that affects the world. Ukraine is a breadbasket. Um, in normal times, it was accounting for 40% of our wheat supplies. Mm. Um, the, the blockade of this food getting out is going to affect food prices worldwide. For 40%, when you say our wheat supplies, do you mean of the world? Of the world's wheat supplies were exported through Ukraine in normal times. That is astonishing. Uh, there are some specific countries, of course, to which the grain goes. What are some of the countries that are on the front lines here of this So it's interesting. Um, Many countries in the Middle East and Africa import, rely on Ukraine for like upwards of 90% of their wheat. Um, Under this particular deal, it's going to all the global markets. Like there's a humanitarian access that's going to places like Yemen and and Sudan and Somalia. But the largest purchasers are really China, Italy, Spain, uh, global markets that they're just helping, you know, getting their wheat as well. It's like oil. Then a yes. shortage in one place rises the price of raises the price everywhere. Exactly. I know that you've been to some of the countries that can be affected, and maybe you can help me understand this. I am wondering. So Russia says we're suspending the deal today. I'm wondering how many days, weeks, months, years it takes for that to move through the pipeline, and for there really to be a shortage on the ground somewhere. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the war a year ago, about five weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, I went to Lebanon, which counts on Ukraine for a vast amount of its uh, of its wheat and sunflower oil import, uh, imports. And already, um, Lebanese pop- people had seen prices on bread and basic staples increase upwards of 50 to 75 percent in just that short period of time. And this was already an economy um, and a population that, that was already suffering immensely. Do you think that we could then expect effects that quickly again, a matter of weeks before prices soar in some places? You know, I think we'll see. There was so much more uncertainty when the war first started. Um, But we also have to contend with the fact that this war has already decreased supplies in general because Ukraine was such a breadbasket. So we'll see. My, My fear is that the impacts will be immediate and near, and we're very much hoping that Russia will reverse course here. I know your group is also active in Ukraine. What has it been like for Ukrainian farmers to farm in a war zone to try to get their products out and now to face this uncertainty that they can get their products out? It's been devastating, and this is the worst time. July is actually a critical harvest period for Ukrainian farmers. So Mm. for those who have chosen to stay um, and to work in the war zone and to harvest their crops, um, the idea that they could then sit in bins um, through this season is is heartbreaking and devastating. Um, Is it physically possible to store the grain for a while if the ports are... it is, but it does not last very long. And and so, um, and so and it also has a long journey ahead of it. So we, we will see. And that's why we hope that Russia will reverse course. Well, let's quickly. talk about that. What would you urge the Russians to do? And what would they see as their interest in resuming this deal, do you think? 
I think Russian interest, the, the things that they're requesting are in terms of lifting of sanctions and all types of things are not going to happen. The reality is this is a conflict that Russia has started with Ukraine. The rest of the world um, should not suffer. And the other part of this is that, like all things, the people that suffer most are those who are the poorest and in the poorest countries, like people in the Horn of Africa or Yemen, people who are already starving. So really for Russia, who are they hurting? They're really hurting the poorest people in the world who have absolutely nothing to do with this conflict. Very briefly, is there any alternate source of grain? Um, we will. There are alternate sources of grain, but but the world and and the markets depend on this supply from Ukraine, and so um, we will see that the war has also impacted fertilizer supplies around the world too. So so we're all everyone is is scrambling to do what it can. Jada McKenna of Mercy Corps in our studio, Studio Thirty One here at NPR. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Steve. Former President Trump is back in court today. The grand jury indicted him for taking classified documents when he left the White House and repeatedly refusing to return them. Now, Trump has been in court many times in his life. One of his strategies is delay, and his lawyers have asked to postpone this trial. What's different this time is the election calendar. He is running for president again, which means he is running to oversee the Justice Department. His former Attorney General William Barr spoke with NPR on Friday. If Trump wins the primaries and is the nominee, which I do not think he will be, but if he is, and then if he gets elected, my assumption is the case would be dropped or he would have the case dropped. I mean, it will be a mess. It'll be a mess. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson has been following the case. Kerry, so what specifically is Trump saying about justifying a delay? Trump is asking this judge he appointed to the bench, Aileen Cannon, to basically put off the trial until after the election because he says jury selection is going to be very difficult, and he says the legal issues here in this case are challenging. Trump is running for the White House. He says he's got a busy schedule between now and next November when he's going to be campaigning and traveling a lot around the country. All right, Jack Smith, a special counsel investigating Trump, what did he have to say? Yeah, the special counsel says there is no basis for postponing this trial. Jack Smith wants to select a jury this December. He says some of Trump's legal arguments are baseless and frivolous. This isn't a difficult case. And that lots of defendants have busy jobs with travel, and they don't get special treatment from the courts. You know, Trump has had lots of legal trouble. He often goes all the way to the Supreme Court to try to get his way. And what's left unsaid in these court papers is that putting off this trial until after the election could threaten the whole case itself. If Trump wins, he could direct his attorney general to drop the indictment or even try to pardon himself in 2025. The FBI found classified documents in a bathroom, a ballroom, a storage room, all at Trump's uh, resort to Mar-a-Lago. Will we see any of those papers in the course of this case? That's not clear at this stage. We're going to learn more in the coming weeks. What's happening now is that lawyers for Trump and his valet, Walt Nauta, are getting security clearances to be able to look at some of these documents. They've signaled in court filings they may challenge whether some of the materials should actually be considered classified. And they've also signaled there should be no secret evidence in the case, no secrets from the jury. Defense lawyers are not giving any ground here. They apparently balked at a protective order the Justice Department tried to file yesterday to prevent classified documents. It's giving to the defense from being shared, including with the defendants themselves. That order is pretty typical, according to former prosecutors. 
It's basically trying to make sure no one releases classified information they get in the course of all this trial preparation, including the defendants. And if they do, those people could be subject to further prosecution and contempt charges. You mentioned Eileen Cannon. That's the judge that Trump appointed, the judge in this case. Um, How is she approaching the job so far? Judge Cannon received a lot of criticism last year when she carved out an exemption for the former president to challenge a lawfully executed search warrant. And she was overruled by a very conservative appeals court, which included Trump appointees since then. She's proceeded pretty conventionally. A lot of people are watching her next moves. The Justice Department has not moved to recuse her based on alleged appearance of impartiality issues. And right now, I do not expect that to happen. All right, that's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thanks for the info. My pleasure. The U.S. Agriculture Department has a new deputy secretary who is making agency history. Here's NPR politics reporter Jimena Bastillo. I, Xochitl Torres-Small, do solemnly swear. Xochitl Torres-Small is no stranger to the Agriculture Department. For the last three years, she has served as undersecretary for rural development. So help me God. So help me God. Deputy, welcome. Now she's taking on a bigger role as deputy secretary. She's the first Latina and the second woman of color to hold this role and is the granddaughter of farm workers. This is also her second nomination from Biden, both which have been passed through Congress with bipartisan support. She's bringing her previous focus on rural issues into her new job. Whenever I think of service at USDA, I'll think of the man who went door to door in Alabama trying to convince people to sign up for water service. Her appointment comes as the Biden administration and Democrats more broadly are looking to strengthen their footprint in rural areas. It's crucial work so that you can keep turning your ideas into food on the table and your investments into reality in rural America. That doesn't mean there aren't challenges ahead. Tora Small told NPR she's particularly concerned about the aging workforce at USDA. She also has to help oversee the flood of dollars pouring in from infrastructure and climate legislation. And she's preparing to lead as the agency confronts its own past. USDA is currently providing financial assistance to farmers who were discriminated against in its lending and other programs. That's why she's most looking forward to bringing more voices to the table. When you look at how diverse rural America is, it's exciting to get to show that through the leadership at USDA, uh, making sure that no matter who you are or where you live, you're not left behind. This comes as Congress is preparing to reauthorize the Farm Bill, a major piece of legislation that allocates USDA money for nutrition assistance programs, conservation, and more, something that only happens every five years. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. This afternoon, and all things considered, so-called active clubs are springing up around the country to train white nationalists in martial arts and prepare them for encounters with their perceived enemies. Listen where you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or the radio.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBOR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, new copycat drugs may mean the end of the reign of Humira, an arthritis medication that has ruled the market for more than two decades. It's 719. Extreme heat is here, and it's only going to get worse. If you had a blackout in a major city like Austin or Phoenix on a 110-degree day, everyone would lose their air conditioning instantly, and thousands of people would die. That's why city governments are hiring heat officers to figure out how to adapt to life on a hotter planet. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The latest episode of our podcast, The Common, is out today. A look at student loan forgiveness and its impact on black borrowers. They tend to have more debt than white borrowers. Host Daryl C. Murphy dives into the issue. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. A mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 88. There's a chance of showers this afternoon and evening. Tonight it falls to a low around 70. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 86. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at cysimsfoundation.org. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The makers of a Broadway musical have a strategy to revive sagging ticket sales. It's an immersive experience. Here Lies Love begins with a famous story, the rise and fall of Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, the one-time dictator of the Philippines and his wife. The show includes music by David Byrne and Fatboy Slim, and it turns the Broadway theater into a disco with many audience members on the dance floor. Jeff London reports. A crowd gathered outside the theater after a recent preview performance of Here Lies Love. My name is Nigo Jesus. I thought it was very fun. I didn't expect to get a history lesson in a disco, but I did. I think this is a risky, adventurous, one-of-a-kind endeavor. Alex Timbers is the director. Its success or failure will probably have some impact on whether people try to do something like this again.
Realize Love was a hit off-Broadway 10 years ago at the Public Theater. And the immersive staging was essential to David Byrne's concept. He read that Imelda Marcos was a fan of disco, so he wrote a score with a thumping beat and melodic hooks. I imagined it as being a theatrical story, a musical story, being told in a discotheque and on little platforms around the periphery. Getting to walk through the audience and really connect with them every night, I feel like I'm getting to experience the show fresh. Ariel Jacobs plays Imelda from age 16 to 57 when a revolution forced the Marcuses to flee the country. I'm literally three feet from you, you know? I'm touching them, I'm shaking their hands. The theater has gotten an expensive makeover. 300 audience members stand on a dance floor while others sit directly above it or in the balcony. Video screens provide historical context. Choreographer Annie B. Parsons says the audience is invited to dance. Come on, let's give our people a break. You say, give our people a break. Over here, let's Often when you go to the theater, you're just sitting on your seat, you know, and the thing passes by and you have some sort of vague experience. But in Here Lies Love, audience participation is not all fun and games. Director Alex Timber says as the show goes on, you become aware of the corrupt, repressive, murderous Marcos regime. The audience can get cast in the drama in a way. So you can be cheering on at the wedding of Ferdinand and Imelda, but then 40 minutes later, you can be at the funeral march for Aquino. That day, something was born in those afternoon showers. And the reason they're here, you need just as the flowers. And you feel, in a way, complicit. You know, I cheered when they won the presidency, but now I realize the tyranny of dictatorship. David Byrne says the show is about the fragility of democracy. People were seduced by the Marcoses. They were glamorous, they were good looking. They did keep a lot of their campaign promises in the early days. So it seemed to a lot of people very promising, but then it all goes south. For most of the cast members, Imelda and Ferdinand Marcus's rise and fall happened long before they were born. But Ariel Jacobs says the legacy is something they all share. And it's so exciting to be in this cast of 100% Filipino people because all of us, I think, feel such a deep connection to the story and to each other. This song right here is going out. Rodrigo Book Six was in the audience at a recent preview. That felt really Filipino, like a party vibe kind of thing. And this kind of sounds corny, but you kind of get tearful because you don't realize how much media you already consume that's not you. And then when you see a full show where it's like all Filipinos, it's kind of awesome, you know? I am a child of the Philippines, from Cagayan to Lake Cebu. 
for those unfamiliar with the history, there are displays in the lobby as well as a QR code in the playbill, which links to a historical timeline. And to the surprise of many audience members, they learn the current president of the Philippines is Bongbong Marcos, Imelda and Ferdinand's son. And Imelda, who famously left thousands of pairs of shoes in the palace when she fled in 1986, is living there again. Set designer David Koren says, At its best, theater is showing you something while entertaining you, something that is thought-provoking and meaningful. And, in the case of Here Lies Love, in a completely kinetic way, in the audience's bodies. So, is this the future of Broadway theater? Already, an immersive production of Guys and Dolls is being planned for later in the season. So theatergoers will walk through Times Square to enter an environment depicting Times Square. David Byrne well knows the boom and bust nature of the business. It's a huge gamble for us and for Broadway theater owners. But I've noticed that the demographic of the audience is different than the usual Broadway show. They're much more diverse and much younger than the usual Broadway show. And I thought, that's what Broadway needs. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. John Kerry, the Biden administration's climate envoy, is in China to reestablish climate change discussions between the world's two biggest economies. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting Phil Lesh and Friends at Leader Bank Pavilion on Friday, July 21st. Tickets and more info at LiveNation.com. And Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine is reporting damage but no serious injuries or deaths following Russia's pre-dawn missile and drone attacks on the port of Odessa. The strikes came a day after Moscow announced it was suspending participation in an agreement that allows safe passage of grain exports from Ukraine's ports along the Black Sea, including Odessa. Russia says these latest attacks were not linked to the deal, which was brokered last year by the U.N. with help from Turkey. A court hearing scheduled today in Florida involving the criminal case against former President Donald Trump and his handling of classified documents after leaving the White House. A federal judge is expected to hear from prosecutors and defense lawyers. The sides are scheduled to go over rules and procedures on how classified evidence can be used at trial. NPR's Kerry Johnson says the former president wants the trial to be pushed back. 
Trump is asking this judge he appointed to the bench, Aileen Cannon, to basically put off the trial until after the election because he says jury selection is going to be very difficult, and he says the legal issues here in this case are challenging. Trump is running for the White House. He says he's got a busy schedule between now and next November when he's going to be campaigning and traveling a lot around the country. Trump has pleaded not guilty to a 37-count indictment, which he's called politically motivated. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. On Beacon Hill today, state representatives will meet again to discuss a bill aimed at reforming Massachusetts gun laws. Half of House members gathered yesterday to discuss the proposal. The other half meets today. Supporters say the plan strengthens rules around how guns are licensed and where they can be carried in the state. House leaders hope to pass the bill by the end of the month. There's still no Senate version of the plan. A worker is dead after an industrial accident at the Swampscott Quarry. Officials say they responded to the call at the Aggregate Industries facility yesterday. The Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration plans to investigate the incident. The worker's name has not been released. The YMCA in Worcester and the UMass Chan Medical School are teaming up to increase swimming safety, especially for black children. The two will host free swimming lessons this summer. Federal statistics show black children between the ages of 10 and 14 are seven times more likely to drown in a swimming pool than white children that age. Kat Plater is a second-year med student and a swimming teacher. She says the goal is to help prevent drowning deaths. If you don't know how to blow bubbles, you'll learn to blow bubbles. So um, our approach is really to meet students at the level that they're at. The classes will take place every Wednesday for the next five weeks at the Y in Worcester. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. The Red Sox beat the A's 7-0 last night in Oakland. The two teams will play again tonight. With last night's victory, the Red Sox moved into fourth place in the American League East. They are now just a game and a half out of a wild card spot. Highs in the upper 80s today under partly sunny skies. There's an air quality alert in effect until midnight for the Worcester area. Tonight it dips to around 70 and there's a chance of rain. Tomorrow mostly sunny and a high in the mid 80s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Your WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. The blockbuster drug Humira has been one of the world's top sellers for more than two decades. But thanks to some copycats, including one that's going to be sold at entrepreneur Mark Cuban's online pharmacy, Humira's reign could be coming to an end. NPR pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin reports. 
Humira is an injectable drug approved in 2002 that treats a range of illnesses, including Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. The drug is popular with patients but has a list price of nearly $7,000 a month. Even with insurance, the drug, made by AbbVie, can be quite expensive. There was no direct competition for years. The company protected the drug with a thicket of patents. Here's Amit Sarbatwari of Harvard Medical School. It's fair to say that Humira is the poster child for what plagues the system. Um, and uh, that is an enormous amount of patents protecting various aspects of the molecule, some of which are undeserved. In 2016, the FDA approved the first drug that was a close copy of Humira. Humira is an antibody-based drug, and the copies aren't identical. The alternative medicines are called biosimilars. But the first Humira biosimilar, and the handful that followed, couldn't come to market until this year because of disputes over all those patents. As of this month, there are nine Humira biosimilars for sale, but so far, not a whole lot of people are buying them. Here's Sarpratwari again. The reason prices haven't changed overnight is because we have a Byzantine, opaque, and in some respects perverse pharmaceutical system from the manufacturer through what's called the pharmacy benefit manager all the way to the pharmacy. That pharmacy benefit manager he's talking about decides which drugs you can get with your insurance card and how much you pay for them. These middlemen purchase drugs and then get a chunk of that money back from the drug makers through rebates. The size of the rebate is usually secret but often influences which drug products get better market share. So even if a competing drug's price is lower, it might not wind up on the menu of drugs or formulary that your insurance will pay for. Karen Van Nuys is a senior fellow at the Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics at the University of Southern California. Who is the pharmacy benefit manager going to put on the formulary? And in, in many cases, it's believed that they prefer the higher rebate drug. But that could change for Humira because of a biosimilar called Usimri. The drug, made by Coherus Biosciences, just launched and is being sold for about $1,000 a month. It will be even cheaper through Mark Cuban's online pharmacy, Cost Plus, where there will be no rebate to a pharmacy benefit manager. The price tag is about $570 a month, plus shipping and fees. Coherus Biosciences' chief business and legal officer, Chris Levinsky, says a rock-bottom price is needed to help patients. How can we take this but, but stay true to our core values of driving access? And that became the seed that ultimately became the low list price. Coherus priced its biosimilar so low that pharmacy benefit managers may opt to forgo the big Humira rebates. That's because Humira is so popular. Humira and drugs like it account for so much drug spending that switching patients to Usimri could allow plans to lower premiums. And employers making their annual choice of health insurance plans for employees care about saving money on Humira. Here's Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health. You know, it really does pay you to be aggressive to try to take that 11% of your spending and reduce it as much as possible. There's all the savings that you can create and be put back into lower premiums. Or employers will pick a different plan. Time will tell if cheaper challengers to Humira catch on. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. When a mobile phone user decides to change carriers, they get to keep the phone number. If you switch from T-Mobile to Verizon, for example, the number belongs to you, not the company. It wasn't always this way. It became so in recent decades by a change in the law. The law says something different, though, when it comes to people's lives online. 
In recent months, many people have switched social media platforms but had to leave their followers behind. And the same can be true with other kinds of data. So let's discuss this with Shane Tooze, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and has studied data portability, as it's called, for years. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. This came up in conversation because a lot of people, of course, are abandoning Twitter. They're unhappy with what's happening at Twitter, but they find it hard to switch to some other platform. How would data portability change that, at least in theory? Well, there's a couple things you brought up in your intro. One is what you're talking about is local number portability. It's known as LNP, and they worked the kinks out in that process about 15, 20 years ago. We don't mm -hmm. have a version of that for social media platforms yet, but there is a definite drive by specifically the European Union and their Digital Markets Act to try to find a way for citizens to be able to port more of their information along. We give information to all kinds of companies online, and those companies may well sell our information to other companies to profit off of it. So they are able to move our information around, but we can't necessarily choose to move our information around or to hold it to ourselves. It's a permission that you give in those terms of use. The last one I looked at was 87 pages. Huh. Uh, so they're buried in there somewhere on page 36 says, by the way, now that you're on board, we're going to sell your data. And that is one of the reasons why there's a large mo movement to go to a national privacy law uh, in here in the United States, because the rest of the world has moved there. I think there's definitely an appetite now for consumers to be choosier about the information that they share on these different platforms. And part of the challenge of that, though, is that we don't have one set of regulations for these companies to be able to build towards in their contracts. They are having to deal with currently California has the, the strongest privacy laws, but you're seeing privacy laws pop up all around the United States, but they vary, which makes it cumbersome to build um, an architecture around that because you don't have one legal platform that you're working on. What would you like to see in the United States? I would like to see one set of rules that we can use to govern our um, our information flow. I, I Up until the real height of social media, I was fine with the way we do this in what we call verticals. So your healthcare was protected much stronger than my retail information, as was my banking information, had much stronger rules on it and had their own regulators in that space. And now that so much information is becoming public, and again, going to those third parties, when I sign that terms of use, once it goes to a third party, I really lose control of it as a consumer. And the national privacy law would allow us to build guidance and belts and suspenders around that information, as well as the importance of uh, transparency and accountability. And at some point, maybe um, being able to you know, access that information and change it, similar to what Meta allows you to do. You can go in and you can actually curate it as an individual consumer. Shane Tews of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, why some Democrats say they'll boycott an address to a joint session of Congress tomorrow by Israel's president. 
Clouds move in throughout the day today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 80s. After about 5 this evening, there's a chance of rain, and tonight it drops to around 70. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and mid-80s. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. Sign up to get our free daily newsletter, WBUR Today. This morning's installment just arrived in email inboxes. It includes what comes next for the next for the 988 mental health hotline created by Congressman Seth Moulton and the expansion of summer school programs in Boston. Sign up at WBUR.org slash newsletters. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association is launching a digital campaign meant to recruit new healthcare workers. The Find Your Place in Healthcare campaign will use multilingual social media posts to recruit workers. Those include roles like nurses, clinicians, and administrative professionals. Last fall, the MHA reported there were 19,000 job vacancies at hospitals around the state. Milford-based Waters Corp. is laying off about 4 percent of its workers. The Worcester Business Journal reports most of those layoffs affect people working at the lab equipment manufacturer's headquarters. The Berkshires is one of the best places for a 60th birthday celebration. That's according to Condé Nast Traveler. The publication released new rankings for the best places to celebrate milestone birthdays. It highlights the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health in Stockbridge as a great place to reflect in nature as one enters their 60s. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Martinez. As global temperatures rise, the relationship between the U.S. and China appears to thaw. Uh, Yeah, John Kerry is the latest high-level American official to visit Beijing. The special climate envoy met today with the ruling Communist Party's head of foreign relations. Kerry's visit is aimed at reestablishing climate change talks between the two countries that contribute the most to the problem. For more on Kerry's trip, we're joined by Zach Coleman, who covers climate change for Politico. Uh, Zach, uh, U.S. and China never seem to be pals on policy. So what can we reasonably expect to come out of Kerry's visit? Well, this is one area where the two countries have a common vision for what they want to do. They want to reduce emissions that are heating the planet. But we do have to set a low bar here. The relationship between the two countries were at historic, at least modern lows. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done to repair how these two countries work together to solve this vexing issue. Now, what are some of the uh, issues that are complicating these talks? 
I mean, these talks have been suspended since last August when then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan as an affront to China. China, of course, considers Taiwan its territory. The U.S. sees it as more independent from China, and that was a big no-no in China, uh, and that has frozen the talks until now. There's also just basic human rights concerns, a lot of the solar panels that are made in China are made with what we would consider forced labor from the minority Uyghur population in Xinjiang. And there is a lot of economic competition. In the years since the Pelosi visit to Taiwan, the U.S. has put a, hundreds of billions of dollars out the door to try to wrest a lot of this battery con semiconductor and clean energy manufacturing from China and back to the U.S. Now, we've known that uh, China and the U.S. are the two largest contributors to a rising global temperatures. And we tend to hear a lot about the United States' ambitious uh, climate goals. But what is China doing to combat climate change? Well, China has a goal to install 1,200 gigawatts of wind and solar by 2030. And they're projected to hit that next year. And for context, that's about six times as much as the U.S. has installed. So they are an enormous installer of renewable energy, and they're an enormous producer of it as well. So they have put more renewable energy onto the marketplace than any other country as well. So they, they do a lot there, but they are backsliding on coal, and coal is the biggest contributor to climate change. Uh, it, it is dirty, it is heating the planet, and if China cannot ditch coal faster, then we are not going to hit our temperature targets to keep the world from exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050. Where do the United States and China have common ground when it comes to climate change? Does that exist anywhere? It does. I mean, both countries want to improve air quality for their citizens, and you do that by getting rid of dirtier fuels. Both countries are seeing these devastating impacts from climate change, especially heat waves, which are hitting not only the U.S., but also China right now. Drought is a problem in China, just as it is in the U.S. So both countries see uh, an economic advantage to transitioning to cleaner fuels and also a human health advantage. Zach Coleman reports on climate change for Politico. Zach, thanks for the information. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up at about 8.20, RSV is the leading cause of hospitalization in infants up to a year old. Now, for the first time, the FDA has approved a shot that protects babies from RSV. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. The United Nations Command says a U.S. national is believed to be detained in North Korea after crossing over the country's border. Ukraine says it stopped an attack on the port of Odessa just a day after Russia pulled out of a deal allowing grain shipments from that city.
Rescue crews in Pennsylvania are still searching for two young children who were swept away with family members during flash flooding over the weekend. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Extreme heat is here and it's only going to get worse. If you had a blackout in a major city like Austin or Phoenix on a 110 degree day, everyone would lose their air conditioning instantly and thousands of people would die. That's why city governments are hiring heat officers to figure out how to adapt to life on a hotter planet. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Upper 80s and partly sunny today. It'll grow more overcast throughout the day, and that may mean some rain this evening. Um, Overnight, it falls to around 70, then mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Ten years ago today, in 2013, Detroit filed for bankruptcy protection. It was the largest U.S. city ever to do that. Quinn Kleinfelter from our member station WDET asked how the city is doing now. At a recent ribbon cutting for a refurbished Detroit hotel, the wealthiest person in Michigan, billionaire businessman Dan Gilbert, delivers what's become a Motor City mantra. Detroit is coming back. Our goal is to provide the spark that will ignite other businesses, both small and large, as well as developers, to get involved, attracting further investment talent to come here and be part of this. Gilbert moved his corporate headquarters to the city a few years before Detroit entered bankruptcy in 2013. And after Detroit shed about $7 billion in debt, Gilbert and others poured investment into the city, especially in a downtown that sprouted trendy restaurants and upscale apartments. It amazed Detroit natives like Alice Cooper, yes, the rock star Alice Cooper, who said during a visit before the pandemic erupted that the previously boarded-up area used to resemble one of his ghoulish stage shows. You were terrified to go downtown Detroit before. Now it's like the coolest place around. I kind of went, yeah, downtown Detroit needs a shot, you know, in the butt. Decades of financial mismanagement and population decline drove Detroit to the brink. State officials took over the city's finances until the mayor and city council produced three straight balanced budgets. Now, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan says the city has no need to use money like federal pandemic relief funds to plug any deficits. Which means we can take the American Rescue Plan money and use it to build affordable housing, use it to build parks, use it to upgrade our resident skills, and Wall Street just upgraded our credit rating again. Analysts like S&P Global's Randy Lehman praise the city's efforts to erase thousands of blighted buildings, even as he cautions Detroit remains very reliant on the shifting fortunes of its manufacturing base. There's still a high poverty rates, low income in the city that just create practical and political challenges to raising revenue. The disparity between the flourishing downtown and impoverished neighborhoods still fuels discontent. Driving towards downtown, Detroiter Dwayne Johnson, no, not the actor Dwayne Johnson, says he watched the city sell vacant properties at cut-rate prices. But Johnson says it did not help him or others he knows who stayed in Detroit through the bankruptcy process. It's like a curse. Rent goes up. They are uh, developing those new apartments or rehabbing that new house for people who make a higher income. And uh, with that, it's pushing people out. 
The city repaired thousands of broken streetlights and improved slow police and emergency service response times, yet Detroit continues to have one of the highest per capita violent crime rates in the country. Johnson notes there's a very visible police and private security presence downtown, but he says he can't feel that on his block. In the city, in the inner city, they react to crime. So after you are victimized is when they show up. But in downtown, their job is to prevent it from happening in the first place. So that's the difference. The bankruptcy is also still impacting one of Detroit's major creditors, city government retirees whose pensions were cut. Detroit's resuming pension Ukraine payments after other attack. entities covered them for the past decade. But former workers like Cecily McClellan, who participated in a city annuity fund, lost thousands of dollars in savings when bankruptcy attorneys decided they'd been paid excessive interest and demanded it back. Then they snuck up on us. They charged us interest on the money that we are being clawed back. So therefore, now it's 10 years into the plan, and we still owe over two-thirds of what we owed originally. Other retirees found they had too little money after bankruptcy to stay retired. At a small construction site, former Detroit Fire Battalion Chief George Orzek builds a deck for the widow of a deceased police officer. He says he's worked construction on the side all his life, but other retirees are doing it now to survive. Police and fire department retirees were spared big pension cuts, but Orzek says they lost most of their health care coverage. It's not a day that doesn't go by, I don't think about it, but it's 10 years ago now. I was able to at least come away with pension and I'm walking, fairly healthy, but there's a lot of people that aren't like that. The financial health of the Motor City itself continues to improve as it steers away from the economic scrap heap it seemed headed towards before bankruptcy. It just remains to be seen how many Detroiters come along for the ride. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. Okay, how would you react if you found a rubber duck on the hood of your vehicle? Now, for Jeep owners, it's part of a trend that's spreading around the world. I would say I duck people as often as I get the chance to. Roz Diefenbach is the proud owner of a blue Jeep Wrangler named Joan. So Roz is the person, Joan is the Jeep, just to keep things clear. And Roz... I assume Joan also fully embraces this trend known as ducking. Yeah, it's the practice of putting a rubber duck on any Jeep that you see. Now, such fads aren't anything new for Jeep owners. You might have heard of the Jeep wave. That's Jeep drivers waving at each other. But now ducking apparently is the biggest trend. A Jeep spokesperson says in an email the company had nothing to do with this. It's a grassroots movement started by Allison Parliament. Her full-time job now is running the official ducking Instagram and promoting ducking at Jeep events, which usually happen in the summer. We autograph ducks for our Jeepers, and we raise money for educators. So we do good with what we've created. I'd call it a webbed feet movement. A Facebook oh. group dedicated to the practice has well over 50,000 members, and the hashtag DuckDuckJeep has been used hundreds of thousands of times on Facebook and Instagram. Heidi Knappenberger says the convenience store where she works is often a pit stop for Jeep owners heading to the Virginia mountains, and when they come through, they stock up on snacks and, of course, you guessed it, rubber ducks, which she sells for three fifty dollars apiece. It has been in the past few years that all of a sudden people are wanting the ducks and the ducks sell really well. We have some pretty good custom ducks at the store too. And they're one in like bikinis. There's military ones that sell really well around here. Knappenberger, the owner of a bright yellow Jeep Wrangler, has been ducked a few times herself. And she keeps every duck she gets 
in her glove compartment because they feel too special to give away. Generally, it feels like a compliment, like someone saw the Jeep and admired it. So I kind of hang on to it as a trophy. Roz Diefenbach says getting a duck always adds a little spark to, her, to the day. And I think it's a really fun part of the community. So if you own a Jeep and someone should put a toy on it, hopefully you don't give a duck. Dad duck joke alert. <laughs> Dad duck joke alert. <laughs> that should have been beforehand, like a spoiler alert or some kind of content warning or something. I need to make like people that. aware, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you close out this hour, eh? Go. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Stephen Skeep. funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine repels an attack on the port of Odessa one day after Russia pulled out of a deal that allowed grain shipments from that city. It's Tuesday, July 18th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, some Democrats say they'll boycott an address by Israel's president to a joint session of Congress tomorrow. The majority of Democrats still tend to view Israel favorably, but the younger demographic and the more progressive side of the Democratic Party does take a different view. Also this hour, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is in Beijing to revive cooperation with the world's other biggest polluter to fight climate change. Plus, the FDA has approved a shot that protects babies from a severe respiratory illness caused by RSV and misconceptions when it comes to America's tipping culture. In sports, Red Sox win, partly sunny in upper 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Extreme heat remains an issue in a large section of the U.S. Heat advisories and warnings stretch from Southern California to Southern Florida today. In Phoenix, that city could set a record today. It may mark 19 days in a row of temperatures at 110 degrees or higher. For member station KJZZ in Phoenix, Kathy Ritchie reports excessive heat can lead to burns and other wounds among people who are homeless. For the homeless, it can be difficult just to exist during the scorching summer months. Dr. Jack Palmer with Circle the City, which provides health care to Phoenix's homeless, says this summer has been especially brutal. If you're sleeping on the ground um, and you're not in a shaded area, the ground can get excessively hot to the point where you can absolutely be getting wounds, burns that turn into worse wounds. The National Weather Service issued an excessive heat warning through Friday for all of Maricopa County, which includes Phoenix. For NPR News, I'm Kathy Ritchie in Phoenix. A Democratic watchdog group has called on a House committee to disinvite Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to speak at a hearing on censorship. Kennedy has suggested that COVID-19 could have been ethnically targeted to spare Chinese and Jewish people. No evidence supports this. NPR's Dave Mistich reports. 
Kennedy was filmed last week saying COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. He added that Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese are most immune. In a statement, Congressional Integrity Project's executive director called Kennedy's remarks hateful and despicable, saying inviting him to testify before Congress is giving a platform to racist conspiracy theories. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy echoed committee chair Jim Jordan's statement that the hearing would proceed Thursday with Kennedy's participation. I disagree with everything he said. The hearing that we have this week is about censorship. I don't think censuring somebody is actually the answer here. Kennedy tweeted over the weekend that his words were twisted and his remarks were not anti-Semitic. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Testimony continues today in the federal sentencing trial of Robert Bowers. In 2018, he shot 11 Jewish worshipers to death at a Pittsburgh synagogue. From member station WESA, Oliver Morrison reports a federal jury will now decide whether to recommend the death penalty for Bowers. Bowers' defense attorneys say he grew up in a violent, abusive household. They argue that the history of mental illness calls for leniency. Prosecutors contend Bowers has shown no remorse for his crimes and caused extreme impacts on the families of the victims. Richard Godfrey was one of the people killed. Gottfried's wife, Peg, said that she and her husband owned their own dental practice together, but she shut the business down after the shooting. Last week, jurors deemed Bowers eligible for the death penalty. He will only receive that sentence if the jury unanimously agrees. I'm Oliver Morrison in Pittsburgh. You're listening to NPR News. The United Nations Military Command in South Korea says an American has gone across the border into North Korea. The U.N. command says the unidentified person was on an orientation tour and that they crossed the border without authorization. The American is now in the custody of the North Korean military. U.N. officials say they're working with North Korea to try to resolve the situation. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is holding a second day of talks with Chinese officials in Beijing. NPR's Emily Fang reports he's hoping to set aside differences between the countries to work together on climate change. Kerry and his Chinese counterpart, the veteran policymaker Xie Jinhua, struck a conciliatory note as their talks began this week. They addressed each other as old friend. The two men have sat across from each other at various negotiating tables for the better part of two decades. And both emphasized their countries needed to find common ground on curbing greenhouse gas emissions. This is not a political issue, Mr. Kerry told Xie. Kerry has three days in Beijing, following up on high-profile cabinet-level visits to China from the Biden administration. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. House Democrats are trying to censure embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos. He's facing 13 federal criminal charges, including fraud, money laundering, and lying to Congress. House Republicans previously rejected an effort to expel Santos. But Democrats point out just last month, House Republicans censured California Democrat Adam Schiff, this over his role in investigating former President Donald Trump. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is beginning to put a price tag on flooding-related damage from the last week. But so far, there's no firm estimate. Sarah Porter is a spokesperson with the agency. She says the first order of business was helping impacted communities clean up and get started with repairs. With that taken care of, she says damage assessments are beginning. Those consist of communities with support from our local coordinators, 
compiling all the costs from storm damage as well as personnel overtime and really any costs associated with the events to try to tally up how much these events might cost. Porter says the process will help determine what financial assistance cities and towns could be eligible for to help cover those expenses. A Boston nonprofit has launched a new online dashboard to make information about the MBTA more accessible. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports. For years, the transportation advocate nonprofit Transit Matters has visualized MBTA data to make it easier for people to understand what is going on with their commutes. The new dashboard shares information about speed, slow zones, and ridership for each subway line and is updated weekly. Transit Matters software engineer Patrick Cleary says the dashboard gathers a lot of data that was spread across their website in one place. We wanted to make it so that you don't have to dig for information anymore, and it's every page you go to already has something there for you to look at. You can see the dashboard at transitmatters.org. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A right-wing organizer will not be reappointed to the Town Affordable Housing Board in Salisbury. Sanson Rachapi withdrew his name from consideration yesterday, just hours before officials were set to vote. He said he wouldn't seek re-election due to what he called defamation from a group against his reappointment. Rachapi helped organize a so-called straight pride parade in Boston in 2019. He was also outside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and has publicly defended the insurrection. The State Department of Conservation and Recreation says it's trying to keep teens busy this summer. That's the motivation behind its summer nights programming. It includes nature-focused programs like kayaking and camping and ones focused on sports, crafts, and life skills. Brian Arrigo is the DCR's commissioner. We're really trying to meet the needs of our young people during the summer months and giving them opportunities to learn and grow from one another, build trust with each other, and do it in healthy and safe environments, and ultimately have some fun. Registration for programs is open on the DCR website. They're available in more than a dozen communities, including Boston, Cambridge, Brockton, and Chelsea. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. The Red Sox topped the A's 7-0 last night in Oakland. The two teams will meet again tonight. An air quality alert is in effect until midnight for the Worcester area. It'll be partly sunny today with a high in the 80s, cloudy overnight with a slight chance for rain and temperatures near 70. Mostly sunny tomorrow and back to the 80s. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. Some Democrats are protesting the Israeli president's address to a joint session of Congress tomorrow. In a few minutes, we'll hear from a former U.S. special envoy on the controversy. First, though, just like the U.S., China is enduring a summer of record-setting heat waves. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is in Beijing this week to try and find ways for the world's largest economies and polluters to put aside differences and come together on climate change. He spelled out his goals for the talks during a hearing on Capitol Hill. What we're trying to achieve now is really to establish some stability, if we can, in the relationship without conceding anything. 
There's no concession. I'm not going over with any concessions. What we're trying to do is find ways we can cooperate to actually address the crisis. And this morning, Kerry relayed that message from the Biden administration to China's top diplomat. For more on what these talks might achieve, we turn to Bernice Lee. She's the Hoffman Distinguished Fellow for Sustainability at Chatham House in London. Now, the U.S. and China broke down their climate talks last year, Bernice, when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. So what is on or off the table for Kerry's talks in Beijing? Well, at the moment, it is important to remind ourselves that it is actually good that they're talking again and setting a diplomatic track for climate change action again. So what is on the table, of course, are things that the two sides have in mind. On the Chinese side, I understand that they're obviously interested in talking about delivery, what they have done so far. The US side, they obviously want to talk about how to make sure that both sides can do more together. Because as you know, but neither sides, as Terry just said, and we just heard, can be seen to be conceding to each other. So being able to move separately together or leading separately together is the only way forward. And is it legitimate to say that China has done a lot on climate change? They've spent a lot on renewable energy. They produce a lot of solar panels. The thing is, though, they also burn a lot of coal, too. So does, do those two things kind of uh, invalidate China's claim that they've done a lot? Well, I think the reality is that energy security has been on everyone's mind, especially since the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. At the same time, it is true that, that China is building more coal, and it is indeed important that they are going to begin to really phase that down as well. At the same time, we shouldn't forget that they also have been overachieving utterly on renewable energy. I think they've achieved their target for 2030 by 2025 already. Lots of stuff on efficiency, energy demand reduction. So in some sense, it's a double-edged sword for, for many countries, because obviously energy transition doesn't take you know one day it is a long-term stuff but at the same time there's strong progress in China on renewable energy just as there have been excellent progress in the US last year with your shock and awe legislative package the Inflation Reduction Act so in some sense both sides are moving forward so there are, there are indeed good things to be building on if the two sides can find a way to work together leading together separately so then what are those things? Because, I mean, they do have differences. Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, they're not small differences, but they're there. Uh, so what do Beijing and Washington need to do to find that common ground? In terms of the climate talks, the things on the table we know are about coal phase down, more renewable energy, methane reduction, as well as forest and finance. At the same time, it is important that the two sides can get talking so that they have a program of work that can actually get them onto the right track. Because right now, not having talked for a long time, it's probably harder to imagine how to pull the rabbit out of the hat. But at the same time, we know that we've seen before, when they put their mind to it, there are things they can work together on, whether it's about carbon capture and storage, whether it's about developing potentially longer-term technology standards. I mean, you know, look, at the moment, it is hard, harder to imagine how can the world work together in the way that we did before. But at the same time, moving forward together would mean making sure that we have systems that are parallel and can actually, not just parallel, but can work together as well, whether it's about technology and other issues. So I think on a policy level as well, many things they can work on, including, for example, longer term governance around geoengineering, in, in the longer term about how do we have just transition to make sure the energy transition is also socially, not just environmentally sound. These are all the things that they could be talking about in addition to methane, coal reduction, forest, finance, all the stuff that is already on the agenda. Bernice, just a few seconds left. We just heard John Kerry say that he's not heading over there with any concessions. But what's the one thing, the one thing that he could bring back to the U.S. to consider this visit a, a success? I mean, look, I mean, in the world of interdependencies, I mean, obviously everyone, no one has real leverage. So being able to work together, the one thing he could bring back is to say that we're back on track for stronger climate action all around. 
And I think that having being able to say that they're talking again and therefore moving in the right direction is is the one important thing he can bring back. So I'm hoping very much that by the end of the day we will hear that they will have some other progress as well, even though at the moment the expectation is that it's likely that it will be a very important solid start to another large program of work down the line. Bernice Lee is a climate and energy expert at Chatham House in London. Bernice, thanks. Thank you. The president of Israel is in Washington today. Isaac Herzog speaks to a joint session of Congress tomorrow. Some Democrats say they will boycott that address to protest Israel's treatment of Palestinians. Dennis Ross is a former U.S. special envoy for Mideast peace talks, and he joins us from Tel Aviv. Welcome. Always good to be with you. Thank you. I feel it's important for many people just to explain the basics here. People will know that Israel has a parliament and a prime minister with the main amount of power. So would you explain who the president is and what power he has? The role of the presidency in Israel is largely a ceremonial role, and people typically tend to focus just on that sense of ceremony. There are a couple of important actual powers that the president does have. After an Israeli election, he is the one who determines who to ask first to form a government. He also has the the power, the only one who has the power of the pardon in Israel. Now, one other thing I would just say in general, presidents who become effective present themselves as being above politics. They are, in a sense, not just the head of state, but they're there, I think, even symbolically to kind of represent the, the whole of the country, all of the people. And... Certainly, Isaac Herzog tries to present himself in that role. He actually has been the one who's been presiding over talks between the government and the opposition to try to sort out the differences over the whole question of whether the judiciary should be reformed or not. Oh, well, that is really interesting because we should note for people that uh, Herzog is associated with center-left parties. He was chosen by an earlier parliament or Knesset, not this right-wing one. So he's not necessarily on the same page as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, it sounds like you're saying. Not necessarily, but he, again, he knows his role is to be nonpartisan. He knows he's not going to be particularly effective if it looks like he's opposing a prime minister. If he can be someone who actually can be helpful to the prime minister in terms of sorting out differences, that's the best of all worlds. At the same time, he certainly doesn't want to lose his credibility with the Israeli public as a whole. So he tries to walk, I think, a pretty fine line these days, given the polarization in Israel. Do you think that he is making progress on this matter of the judiciary? And we will remind people that Netanyahu, since his election months ago, has been trying to push through big changes that would apparently weaken the judiciary and strengthen his majority in the Knesset. uh, And that has led to continual protests, even after Netanyahu has offered to weaken the bill somewhat. We're, we're talking about 28 straight weeks of very significant protests throughout the country, including today is a, a day of disruption uh, from the opposition. I think that President Herzog has, been a, has, has created that forum for discussion. The problem is those discussions have been suspended. Uh, they've been suspended in part uh, because the opposition saw the government going ahead and trying to impose at least one of the provisions of the reasonability provision mm-hmm. uh, of the reform. Uh, and that was after a period of a couple of months of, of discussions and negotiation. I think the President Herzog will still try to somehow find a way back to those discussions, but we're not in them right now. And that's one of the reasons you're seeing some of the reactions in the country. Ambassador, I want to note that Herzog, as I've read, is the first president to be born in Israel since its declaration of independence 
in modern times, but he visits at this moment when there's been this Israeli raid in Jenin in the Palestinian West Bank, which underlines the fundamental conflict over who gets to live where. Has he offered any way forward? He is certainly someone who behind the scenes tries to do all that he can. Uh, he has a very good relationship, for example, with, uh, with the King of Jordan. Uh, he is someone who has the, has the capability. Again, he won't do it without the government knowing. He has the capability to reach out to the president of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mahmoud Abbas. He, he's not the kind of person who can play a direct role in terms of trying to change things, but he is the kind of person who can, at times, interestingly enough, facilitate discussion, uh, pick up the phone, and he could call Mahmoud Abbas to offer him good wishes or even to suggest, you know, maybe this is a time to see if there is certain channels that could be opened. There are subtle roles that he can play that can be helpful, and he does, he has credibility uh, with Palestinians, and and certainly at this point within Israel at a time of great polarization, he still is seen as someone who is trying to, to repair some of the breaches that you see within the country. Just got a few seconds left, but I want to ask about the U.S. role here. The U.S. ambassador is leaving, gave an exit interview on the way out to the Wall Street Journal. It was strikingly frank. He said, I'm not getting a Nobel Peace Prize in the next seven days. Because of the obvious, the Biden administration has not advanced a big peace plan. He did argue, I can look back and say that I've done things that have made life just a little bit easier and better for the average Palestinian. But really, in a few seconds, for the United States, is that enough for the U.S. to be doing? Well, I think the U.S. needs to try to do a little bit more. We need to focus on what are the steps that Israel should be avoiding so it doesn't exclude a two-state outcome. And we need to see real reform on the Palestinian side within the Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority security forces have been largely inactive because of the lack of legitimacy of the PA generally among Palestinians. Real reforms that would restore some sense of, of legitimacy could make a big difference in terms of the Palestinians performing some of their responsibilities. Getting mm -hmm. both sides to focus on their responsibilities would be a very good way to move back towards trying to achieve something. Dennis Ross, former U.S. Special Envoy, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, European officials have signed a deal to give cash to Tunisia in exchange for stepped-up border enforcement to stem migration. That's despite criticism, the money will prop up an increasingly autocratic Tunisian government. It's 821. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. 
Lately, one of the hottest local tickets hasn't been for a concert. It's been for a commuter rail ride to get to a concert. The MBTA says tickets for a ride to Beyonce's August 1st concert at Gillette Stadium go on sale this morning at 11. And you'll remember that those tickets sold out quickly ahead of Taylor Swift's performance back in June, so you might want to start acting now. A mix of sun and clouds today with a high near 88. There's a chance of showers this evening. Tonight falls to a low around 70. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 86. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. This fall, many parents in the United States will be able to get a shot for their babies that protects them from a severe respiratory illness caused by RSV. The Food and Drug Administration approved the shot, and NPR's Ping Huang has more. The shot is called Bayfortis, a name meant to evoke baby strength. That's because it strengthens the baby's immune system against one of its most common threats, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. It's the leading cause of hospitalizations in U.S. babies, landing between 60 to 80,000 in the hospital each year. The drug makers AstraZeneca and Sanofi hope their product can prevent many of those. In their clinical trials involving almost 3,000 babies, one shot of the antibody drug lowered the risks of hospitalization by 60 to 80 percent. Their data, shared last month with a panel of FDA advisors, looked convincing to Dr. Marianne Jackson, a pediatrician in Kansas City, Missouri. There's good safety data and there's good efficacy data uh, that shows that uh, the product will prevent a significant number of cases of RSV lower respiratory uh, tract disease. The shot is designed to prevent serious RSV infections. Its antibodies float in the bloodstream looking for the virus. When they find it, they stick to it in places that stop the virus from entering cells. John Heinrichs is head of innovation at Sanofi. Well, it works very rapidly. Um, we know that within a matter of days, you achieve uh, very high levels of antibody that are likely to be protective. That protection lasts for at least five months. The drug is approved for newborns and infants in their first RSV season and for children up to two years old with additional medical risks for their second RSV season. Dr. Marcus Plesha with the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials says it may take a while for parents to warm up to the new product. During the RSV season, it's recommended very soon after birth. And, you know, a lot of parents are, are a little bit um, cautious about wanting to give really young children things. And so it, it may take a little bit of time to really build confidence. Sanofi hasn't yet announced how much the drug will cost. Ping Huang, NPR News. The rise of so-called tipflation has consumers fuming. People are pushing back against the social pressure of the tip screen and the higher amounts that they're being asked to tip. 
But what's happening on the other side of that screen? How do the workers feel? NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith has that story. Dylan Shanker got his first job as a barista in 2010. It was just a way to make rent. At first, it was just a job, but then you kind of become passionate about it. So passionate that 13 years later, Shanker is still working as a barista, now at a cafe in Philadelphia. I've become kind of a nerd about it. I, I have some of my own equipment that I'll bring with me. Like Schenker's special portafilter, which lets him see the coffee while it's brewing. Schenker says he knows exactly what a perfect cup of coffee should look like and tastes like. A good espresso shot. It has kind of like a creamy, full mouth, just like slightly sour, slightly bitter. Also slightly bitter these days, the tipping situation. I know tipping with baristas is weird. It wasn't always like this. When Dylan started out, tipping was in cash, and it wasn't much. He took home roughly 10 bucks a day. But tipping gradually became a bigger and bigger part of his pay and has gotten more and more uncomfortable. This sort of, like, awkwardness, it's, like, verboten to, to say out loud anything about tipping in front of the tip screen. And every once in a while, things get really weird. I remember this one guy, he looks up at me and he's like, I accidentally tipped. I'm like, what do you expect me to respond to that? I'm, like, I'm sorry. The rise of the tip screen in businesses from fast food to grocery stores has been causing a lot of confusion and outrage for customers. I mean, my, even my own niece called me about this. <laughs> Sylvia Allegretto is an economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I became an economist because I was a low-wage worker for a long, long time, and part of I was a, a tipped worker. Allegretto says being a tipped worker is tough. Poverty rates for tipped workers are more than double that of other workers. Allegretto says we tend to think of tips as a bonus for good service, but in reality, they are something else entirely. It's, it's a subsidy. It's a wage subsidy to the employer. It's not a tip. It goes to your wage. It's just the amount that the employer doesn't have to pay you. I and mean, people don't understand this. And here's where we get to this moment we're having in tipping. With inflation happening across the economy, businesses are dealing with rising costs. At the same time, there's a lot of pressure to keep prices low for increasingly frugal customers. Tipping is a way to get more money from customers without actually charging them more. Money that goes to paying workers. If there is some means of tipping that's available to you, that should signal to you that they aren't being paid enough. Tipping is sort of an acknowledgement of that fact. Barista Dylan Schenker says tips make up 10 to 20 percent of his pay, a very volatile 10 to 20 percent that totally relies on the whims and moods of customers. If you aren't tipping them, then you are taking advantage of that labor. Tipping is presented as a choice, a thank you for great service. But businesses are using tips as a baked-in part of worker pay and a way to attract often hard-to-find workers. More and more companies are doing this, and customers are increasingly resentful about the awkward tip screen moments and the unexpectedly high final bill. But Chinker says a lot of people don't understand the wages service workers actually make. He is 39, he has a decade of experience and expertise, and... I've never made more than $25,000 a year. I cannot even wrap my head around the idea of even just making thirty dollars or $40,000 a year. I could just, like, do so much with just that much money. Roughly half of Shanker's customers tip, which is in line with the national average. But data shows customers have an increasingly negative view of tipping. Tips are down from last year by nearly 10 percent for food service workers. And just in case you were wondering if workers can tell if you've tipped or not from the tip screens, they can. 
there's just something really, really demoralizing about someone seeing that screen, knowing I'm not rich and kind of just not caring about you enough to kind of like want to help you make a living. Especially when he is standing there with their perfectly balanced, sour, but not too sour, espresso drink. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We hear from Boston area doctors on a new drug to treat Alzheimer's that outperforms one just approved by the FDA. It's 8.30. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind if you miss something. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Israel's President Isaac Herzog is scheduled to meet with President Biden today at the White House. They're expected to focus largely on the war in Ukraine. Russia launched missiles and drones at Ukraine's port of Odessa along the Black Sea before dawn. The attacks came a day after Moscow suspended its participation in a U.N. deal allowing safe passage for grain exports from Ukraine. The Senate is expected to take up the National Defense Authorization Act this week. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, the House passed its version of the $886 billion bill late last week. The House version of the legislation includes a number of controversial provisions, including one that would reverse a Pentagon policy that reimburses service members who travel out of state to get an abortion. Another amendment in the House bill would eliminate diversity and inclusion programs at the Defense Department. Senate Democrats say they worked through the weekend on their chamber's version of the bipartisan bill and are aiming to bring it up for a procedural vote later today. President Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry, is in China. He's hoping to restart climate talks between the U.S. and China. Beijing suspended high-level contacts last year after then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking government secrets is comparing himself to former President Donald Trump in his effort to get out of custody. Lawyers for Jack Teixeira say that others in high-profile documents cases are not being held. They point to Trump, who's also being charged under the Espionage Act. The judge who ordered Teixeira to remain in custody says he's a flight risk. Teixeira has pleaded not guilty. A coalition of groups is trying to prevent the closure of the birthing center at Lemonster Hospital. UMass Memorial Health plans to close the center in September. Opponents of that move rallied last night on Lemonster Town Common. State Representative Michael Kushnerik of Fitchburg says a closure would force many low-income residents in need of prenatal care to rely on public transit to go to Worcester for checkups. What we'll see is an inability for people to get those checkups, and uh, they will, quite frankly, just skip these important checkups. And you're talking about health uh, disparities uh, and negative health outcomes for the life 
of both the mother and the child. UMass Memorial Health says falling birth rates and staffing shortages are behind the closure. An investigation is underway after a new Bedford police detective was shot last night. Officials say the injury is not life-threatening. It's unclear if anyone else was injured in the shooting. It's 834. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. The Red Sox's hot month of July continued last night with a 7-0 win over the A's in Oakland. Boston is now 10-2 this month. The Sox will play the A's again tonight. The Bruins have signed a Cape Cod native to a one-year deal. 24-year-old defenseman Riley Walsh was born in North Falmouth. He played college hockey at Harvard and spent last year in the American Hockey League. Highs in the upper 80s today under partly sunny skies. There's an air quality alert in effect until midnight for the Worcester area. Tonight it dips to around 70 and there's a chance of rain. Tomorrow mostly sunny and a high in the mid 80s. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The European Union is offering hundreds of millions of dollars to the Tunisian government. Now, it's meant to help the country's failing economy. In exchange, though, Tunisia has to help stem illegal migration to Europe. Of which there's been a lot. So far this year, according to Italy, some 75,000 people arrived in smugglers' boats. Thousands of others have died trying to make the journey across the Mediterranean, and many started in Tunisia. The deal means the European Union will be helping to fund a government that has undermined Tunisia's once hopeful young democracy. NPR's Ruth Sherlock covers a region, joins us now from the UK. Ruth, uh, tell us more about this deal between the EU and Tunisia. What is being offered? Hi, yeah, well, EU leaders were just there, including the Dutch and Italian prime ministers on Sunday to try to move this forward. And what the EU is dangling is this prospect of as much as a billion dollars in financial aid. Most of that is dependent on Tunisia agreeing to reforms imposed by the IMF. But like you said, you know, the other big piece about this is migration. So the EU, especially Italy, where lots of migrants arrive, is desperate to stop the smugglers' boats that keep coming across the Mediterranean Sea. Even more boats are setting off from Tunisia these days than from Libya. And the EU wants to strengthen the Tunisian Coast Guard and encourage Tunisia to also send home migrants that arrive there trying to get to Europe. Tell us why, though, the nature of the Tunisian government is bringing out critics of this deal. Well, part of it is that Tunisia's president, Kais Saeed, has done a lot to unravel Tunisia's democracy that formed after the Arab Spring Revolution in 2011. He was elected on a promise to fix the economy, but he since then centralised power to himself, weakened the mandate of parliament, jailed prominent opponents, and critics like Monica Marx, a Tunisian expert and assistant professor at New York University in Abu Dhabi, well, she told me that in dealing with Saeed, the EU, the EU is sacrificing its principles. 
the most important thing about this deal is it symbolically says we in the EU are willing to use our taxpayers' money to achieve our priority in Tunisia, which is stopping migration as much as possible, no matter the cost, no matter how much you violate human rights. She says the deal comes across as a pat on the back for Said. Now, speaking of human rights, one of those concerns over human rights is that in recent months there have been attacks against black Tunisians and migrants from other parts of Africa. What's driving that? Monica Marks and others say Said has fueled racist sentiment in Tunisia. He denies any allegations of racism, but he's given speeches that cite the conspiracy theory also sometimes used by white nationalists in Europe and the US and rooted in anti-Semitism. It's known as the, quote, great replacement and basically alleges that there's a conspiracy to overwhelm the country with black Africans. Uh, so this was followed by a wave of attacks in Tunisia in recent months and black Tunisians and migrants have been robbed and attacked attacked and evicted from their homes. And so the irony experts say is that actually this may be one of the causes for the increase in illegal migration across the Mediterranean as people try to flee Tunisia. And there's this concern that actually in backing Kais Said's government, that plan may actually backfire and there may actually be more migration to Europe. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock in the UK. Ruth, thanks. Thank you very much. Next, we have an extreme case of identity politics. Malaysia has a culturally and ethnically diverse population. And ever since its independence in the 1950s, the government has explicitly made religion and ethnicity central to the political system. Now, a legal case is exposing some challenges for that identity-driven system. NPR's Emily Fang reports. After Lo Si Hong divorced her ex-husband in 2019, he disappeared with her three children. It would be three years before she found them, going to a school far away. My son messaged me. Then I go to school. Then I asked the student. He said, yes, but his name is Irfan. In other words, the school had changed her only son's name to Ifan, a Muslim name. But Lo didn't think anything of it. And last year, a court awarded her custody of the three children. She didn't know this was only the start of her legal woes. Here's one of her lawyers, Shamshar Singhtand. She only got it when I received the three certificates of conversion emailed to me. Conversion certificates, meaning her ex-husband had officially converted himself and the three children to Islam. They were now Muslim. In Malaysia, this means that the children are now subject to Muslim laws and cannot be raised by a non-Muslim like Lo, who's a registered Hindu. Lo said she did not consent to the conversion, and last year she launched a legal suit to nullify the conversions. But this is not easy. Here's Malaysian lawyer Sri Morgan Alagan. He's also on Lo's legal team. There's no law that stops one parent from converting a child without the consent of the other. There's no federal law. There is no political will to do it. Because the moment they pass such law, it will be viewed as anti-Islam and the, the government in power will not get the Malay Muslim majority support. Lowe's legal case has captivated the nation. She regularly dominates newspaper headlines these days, particularly in the run-up to the summer state elections. Pro-Islam parties have vilified her to bring out Muslim voters. People respond to this issue in a very emotional way because it's not just about the children. What comes into play is about how then Islam must be protected at all costs. This is Rosani Isa, director of Sisters in Islam, an organization which reinterprets doctrine from the perspective of gender equality. 
The idea of protecting Islam is why Lowe's case has divided a society already polarized along ethnic and religious lines. Lowe is of Chinese and Indian descent, but the country's ethnic majority are mostly Malay and Muslims, and they are part of a special demographic category. They get something called Bumiputra rights, preferential financial, education, and housing policies. Some people convert to Islam to be part of the Bumiputra, but becoming Muslim also means there is no option for Muslims to leave Islam. And so there is power at stake in Lo's case. Her conversion challenge could put limits on Muslim religious authority. Bridget Welsh, a researcher at the University of Nottingham who studies Malaysia and is based there, explains. The issues here involve the scope of where the religious court ends and the scope of where religious authority ends and the scope of where religious authorities in terms of organization, in terms of trying to claim custody. As in a civil court could take precedence over religious courts, something many in the Malaysian Malay majority oppose. It's about the level of political power and the lines where these things are being drawn, with political pressures expanding and pushing those lines further into the behavior of non-Muslims. A court ruled against Ms. Lowe in May, but she is appealing, and she says the wait for her and her children has been excruciating. I asked Ms. Lowe what she plans to do if she wins her appeal. Nothing. I just enjoy my children. Leave me alone. But it's not clear the country's polarizing identity politics will leave her alone. Emily Fang, NPR News, Kuala Lumpur. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tracks the slow post-pandemic rebound in tourism to the U.S. Clouds move in throughout the day today. Temperatures will rise to the upper 80s. After about 5 this evening, there's a chance of rain, and tonight it drops to around 70. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and mid-80s. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, business has come to a halt for many in the state's film industry. That's after the Screen Actors Guild went on strike late last week. The union wants better pay and regulations on the use of artificial intelligence in television and film. WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka reports on the impact. The actor strike joins an ongoing writer strike, which had already halted productions. Now the industry is effectively shut down. Gary Crossan is the general manager of New England Studios in Devons. He says he has nothing going on at his facility right now and just has to wait things out. Well, I think we'll be fine. Uh, You know, I think that we just have to be patient. We were patient through COVID. We kept our entire staff on the payroll, and we are doing that as well right now. Crossan says if the strikes continue, they could also delay or cancel projects he has lined up this fall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. Boston-based HMH is laying off employees at its outpost in Portland, Oregon. The Boston Business Journal reports the education materials company will cut a total of 120 jobs. HMH acquired the Portland location in May. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Researchers say they have hopeful news for people with Alzheimer's. They delivered that news at a meeting in Amsterdam. An experimental drug appears to be even better at slowing down the disease than another one that was just approved by the FDA. Here's NPR's John Hamilton. The news came at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. It involved positive results from a large study of the drug Denanumab. At a press briefing, the association's chief science officer, Maria Carrillo, offered this reaction. There is a palpable excitement about what's happening in our field. This decade is already proving to be the decade of Alzheimer's, and I think it will continue to increase and get better from here. Later, the drug's maker, Eli Lilly, provided detailed results of its study of more than 1,700 people. Dr. Daniel Skrivansky is Eli Lilly's head of research and development. This is the biggest effect that's ever been seen in an Alzheimer's trial for a disease-modifying drug, somewhere in the range of 35% slowing of disease progression. Another drug called Lakembi or Lakanumab had slowed the disease by about 27% in a different group of patients. Lakembi received full approval from the FDA early this month. Skrivansky says the new drug, Denanumab, worked best in people just beginning to experience problems with memory and thinking. What we saw is that the ability to slow disease progression was strongest if you catch this disease earlier. Denanumab clears sticky amyloid plaques from the brain. And in this study, patients stopped getting monthly infusions of the drug after brain scans showed the plaques were largely gone. Skrivansky says the idea was to find out whether patients would continue to benefit even after treatment ended. And the answer was yes. So it's really exciting to think that this is a, a drug that can be used in many patients probably for a pretty limited duration, 12 months or less. Patients on Lakembi, the drug just approved by the FDA, must keep receiving infusions indefinitely. Both drugs can cause swelling or bleeding in the brain. In the Denanumab study, brain scans revealed these side effects in about one in four patients. Skavonsky says a few of them also had symptoms like headache or confusion. So 6% of people on the therapy, they have these imaging abnormalities and then symptoms, which could be mild, but in, in a few patients it was severe. And three patients who had these symptoms ultimately died. The results with both Denanumab and Lakembi provide strong evidence that removing amyloid from the brain can slow down Alzheimer's. The successes come after many other amyloid drugs failed to help patients. Dr. Risa Sperling of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston says one reason the new drugs are working is that they are being started sooner, before the brain has been badly damaged. I also think we've learned to be more aggressive with dosing. And both these two trials really suggest you have to knock down that amyloid from baseline. You have to do it quickly. But it's still not clear which forms of amyloid drugs should target. Sperling says single amyloid molecules appear to be harmless, but when they start to clump together, they can take on forms that are toxic. But eventually, lots of amyloid ends up in plaques in the brain. And there's been a debate in our field for 30 years now about whether the plaques themselves are causing the problem. Denanumab is designed to target plaques specifically. Lakembi, the approved drug, also goes after other forms of amyloid. Yet Sperling says both drugs appear to stave off cognitive decline in patients with early Alzheimer's. This gives me hope that if you went even earlier, 10 years earlier, you could flatten the curve altogether one day. A big study to test that idea is already underway. John Hamilton, NPR News. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on Ukraine's offensive against Russia, plus the historic heat wave affecting nearly all of Europe. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry is in China today to discuss how the two countries can work together to slow climate change. U.N. officials say an American is being detained in North Korea after crossing the country's border. And in Florida, civil rights groups are suing state officials over a new immigration law there. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. A new, less lethal weapon could make its way to the belt of American cops. It's called Bola Wrap. A handheld device shoots out a cord that wraps around the target's knees. Uh, Wrap, wrap, wrap. You know, if you're sweeping somebody into the ground, you could potentially find them being injured. And this actually helps them stop and tries to wrap them up a little bit. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Upper 80s and partly sunny today. It'll grow more overcast throughout the day, and that may mean some rain this evening. Overnight, it falls to around 70, then mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-80s. It's 75 degrees in Boston. With all that sand, Silicon Valley wealth and innovation, what fixes its most high-profile city? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. And by the new Glassdoor app. Professionals can now join real anonymous conversations within their company, industry, and communities and get answers about careers on Glassdoor. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Judging from hotel rooms in use and room rates, San Francisco has been lagging major cities in the U.S. in its tourist industry, recovering from pandemic. A San Francisco Chronicle analysis points to one key problem. While tourists are flowing back in from many countries, they're significantly lagging from one very big one, China, a country with an economy that is failing to catch fire. Stories about crime in San Francisco and some big retailers like Nordstrom leaving its downtown may be discouraging others from visiting. I spoke to San Francisco's mayor, London Breed, about these and other issues facing her city. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You're working to get more than 220 more police officers hired. You want 800 prevention places to help people at the edge stay out of homelessness. Will these and other of your initiatives, do you think, Mayor, be enough? Will the narrative that San Francisco is a bit of a mess to be avoided, will that be different maybe a year from now? Well, I hope that it will be different. I think that it will be considerably different. But this is not just about homelessness, the challenges that exist in San Francisco. We have many issues with open-air drug dealing. Fentanyl has risen to crisis level, and we have support from the state and the federal government finally to address some of the challenges around law enforcement. Um, So our goal is to do everything we can from a local level to not only make the 
appropriate investments to increase our police force, to make sure we have alternatives to policing, to make sure that residents of the city in all parts of the city feel safe. Let me ask you this. I work out of my program's New York City Bureau, and like your city, New York has a huge gap between rich and poor. It has vacant office space galore post-pandemic, like San Francisco. Homelessness, terrible problem here. But as I look out the window here in July, the streets are packed with tourists. There's energy beyond tourism that I'm not seeing as much these days when I visit your city. What accounts for that difference? Well, the tourists, the visitors are up actually in the city. There are certain parts of the city, like our downtown shopping area that continues to struggle, but Union Square in the downtown area is typically packed. The Pier 39 and Ferry Building and our new attractions near the Golden Gate Bridge or Tunnel Top Parks and other places, but things have definitely changed. I think the narrative that's out there about the city has had an impact on tourism, but ultimately when people get here, they're like, San Francisco isn't what people told us it was going to be, and hopefully that word gets out as well. It's such a contrast. I mean, people see these headlines that Nordstrom is leaving downtown San Francisco, and what you're saying is if you actually go to a place like Union Square, there's other action. Well, yeah, let's talk about that because the fact is Nordstrom didn't just close its store in San Francisco, it closed stores in Canada and all over the U.S. And retail is moving in a different direction. It was before the pandemic. So many of our retail businesses were struggling and it's a combination of things. It's not just about, you know, concerns around safety. It's, you know, our tax structure is the ability to find workers, However, many of our luxury brands, like the Chanel store, they're expanding. Yves Saint Laurent, they're expanding. A lot of our luxury brands in San Francisco have had record sales, and it's why they haven't decided to go anywhere. Now, homelessness, a federal appeals court panel is sticking with rulings that give people the right to, to camp out if there are not available places for them to live. Is this a problem for you in your effort to make San Francisco a place where people come back with their money? We have run into a lot of problems with trying to clear encampments. And what we do when we go into these encampment areas, we make it clear to folks that we want to provide shelter as an alternative. And some people take us up on our offer and some people don't. It's really a complex, challenging issue. But at the end of the day, when we have a place for people to go, they should not be able to continue to be on the streets where, you know, unfortunately, you know, you have trash, you have feces, you have public health related issues. You have a number of these folks who unfortunately have other issues around addiction and substance use disorder and mental illness. So we need to be able to do our jobs to keep the streets clean and to keep the streets clear so that people can use the sidewalks as they were intended to be used. London Breed, mayor of San Francisco. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, artificial intelligence has lifted the stock market this year. I wanted to know how this could play to San Francisco's benefit. You can stream the extended version of this conversation from marketplace.org if you missed that on the air today. Retail sales for June just came in slightly lower than expected. The increase of just two-tenths of a percent feeds the view that higher interest rates are working to slow the economy. Markets, S&P futures are now down two-tenths of one percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying.
and by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Indeed, a streamlined hiring solution. Indeed helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. Last summer, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said investors should brace for an economic hurricane, as in a potentially severe recession as the Fed raises rates to fight inflation. Now a research report from a rival Wall Street firm says maybe it'll be no more than periods of light drizzle. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Goldman Sachs's forecast calls for U.S. economic growth to slow the rest of this year, but it expects growth nevertheless. In a research note, the bank echoes broadly held expectations that the Federal Reserve will hike interest rates again next week. Goldman Sachs expects that to be the last rate hike. Meanwhile, the latest economic indicators show inflation is slowing while economic activity is still chugging along. That means a so-called soft landing is looking more likely. Goldman Sachs is reducing the likelihood of a recession from a 1 in 4 to a 1 in 5 chance. Still significant, but nowhere near a certainty. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. Partly cloudy with temperatures in the upper 80s today. Those fall to around 70 tonight, and there's a chance of some showers. It clears up for a mostly sunny day tomorrow in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston, and the BBC is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmina Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.